Welcome to Behind the Standards with United Rentals. This is the podcast where we discuss construction safety, specifically trench excavation and confined space safety, but also other topics that deal with general job site safety as well. I'm Rick Plusinski, Customer Training Specialist for United Rentals, and with me are TJ Hutchinson and Chad Lindsley. TJ, please introduce yourself. Thank you, Rick. Um, my name is TJ Hutchinson. I'm a district sales manager for United Rentals Trench Safety, and I cover the Mid-Central District, which is basically from Western New York, um, including Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Western Pennsylvania, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Um, I've been with United Rentals now for 15 years, and prior to United Rentals, I was a, I actually worked as a project manager, estimator, and in business development for um, for couple of contractors that did sanitary and wastewater treatment plant work. Very good. Thanks. And Chad? Yeah, Chad Lindsley. Um, I'm a region product development manager for United Rentals Trench Safety, dealing primarily uh, with our largest national accounts. Um, been in the industry since 2007, so 13 years, and uh, had the opportunity over the years to uh, spend an awful lot of time with our clients uh, consulting and working with them on confined space issues as well as excavation issues. Very good. Thanks so much. Now, the purpose of our podcast is to inform, educate, and hopefully clarify some of the more common misconceptions about safety in the construction world. And today we'll be discussing confined space entry safety. And far too often as a trainer, I show up to conduct some type of class, be it an OSHA 10 or even an excavation safety class. And people who consistently work in confined spaces have no idea of the requirements to follow when working in such an environment. OSHA defines confined spaces as a space that has three characteristics associated with them. The first is large enough to bodily enter. The second one is limited or restricted means of access and egress. And the third one is not designed for continuous occupancy. If your space meets that definition, then you've got a confined space. And any space that contains or has the potential to contain hazards that cannot be controlled or eliminated must be considered a permit-required confined space and therefore must follow a specific set of rules to enter and work within that space. And in order to properly protect employees from the hazards within confined spaces, it requires several steps of pre-planning. Pre-planning for the job, pre-planning for hazards, pre-planning for emergencies, and pre-planning for rescues. And TJ, you had a situation when you were working in the field as a contractor that can explain why this pre-planning is extremely critical to safe confined space operations. Yeah, absolutely. So this was many years ago, early on in my career. Uh, we had a crew that um, was working on a the punch list on a, on a sanitary project. We had installed a force main, um, and it was running up a hill, and there were 12 manholes associated with it, and they were air relief valves um, associated with that force main in each of those manholes. So as part of the startup process, we had a crew that, was, that had to go down and basically close the valves. We tested, we had relieved the air, and, and, and we were ready to put, put the system into, into, into function. And so the, our crew, which was a, a laborer and a, and a foreman, started the day off. Um, we felt pretty, pretty confident that we were um, 
at least on paper, competent people in order to um, to complete this work. So they, they started the day and they went through each each manhole. They made an entry, went down, finished up, um, moved on. And it, it was towards the towards the end of the day. And and the labor labor went down the ladder and he was about 10, 12 feet deep and passed out. He was out and the foreman saw him, saw that he um, saw that he hit the ground and said, I'm going to go get him. So he started down a little um, to, to capture, to, to grab him and um, started to, he got dizzy and, and he raised back up and he waved his arms. And then the next thing he was at the bottom of the, the manhole. So there was some, there was some magic that happened here. The little city they were working in just happened to be one of the, one of the few locations. Now, mind you, this was a long time ago that had a rescue team associated with, with the city. And they just happened to be at the gas station that was across the street from this manhole fueling up. And they just happened to have the rescue gear on the truck that they were in. And by some miracle, they saw the um, the foreman waving his arms and went over to investigate. And when they got there, they realized that they were both at the bottom of this 12-foot deep manhole. And they um, quickly went into a rescue mode and were able to pull both the laborer and the foreman out of the manhole. And in this case, they were both sent or care flighted to the hospital. Unfortunately, both both of them lived Um but it was it was touch and go for a moment, and I think the moral of it was that um, they had entered this manhole and, and they missed a couple steps. Right, first step was they they didn't test the air; they had they were complacent because they had made eleven good entries prior, and they they were just going to wrap this one up and be done. And so their their safety gear was not set up; it was all on the truck; it was all available. They had a a rescue winch; they had a tripod. They had air. Um, they just chose not to use it, you know, and and didn't plan for that manhole. And it, it almost cost them both a lot. Doesn't really do a whole lot of good when it's on the truck, right, Chad? Absolutely not. And unfortunately, when TJ brings up a, a story that's just this reoccurring theme throughout the industry, I mean, having the opportunity over the years to train an awful lot of classes and and ask those classes and ask those people that are that are in those classes to do you have any real life situations where some of this has happened? And unfortunately that may be a different community. It may be a different contractor, maybe a different area of the country, but that's reoccurring theme is um, the continuance of entering these confined spaces without the use of monitoring continuous forced air ventilation and just a plan of attack in place. So uh, unfortunately we all the time and, and, uh, there are things that we can do that we're going to talk about here today that that can actually you know prevent this from happening if if planning properly and using the uh, safety pr- uh, precautions and equipment that are available to all of us. Yeah, and I mean, really, when you're talking about you know we talk about pre-planning for the job, pre-planning for hazards, pre-planning for emergencies, and pre-planning for rescues. And TJ, it sounds like you did a lot of the pre-planning for the job in order to you know do the job safely. But what happened? Yeah, absolutely. So, so we had put the time and the effort into the training. All of our crews at that time had been through the training. We understood what the risks were, and in the heat of the action, you know, we they just didn't follow through with the plan. You follow the guidelines of OSHA, and, and, and they did not. So they they took some shortcuts, and, and they they accessed um, they accessed incorrectly. And, and I think the um, the big takeaway 
would, would just be, you know, testing the air before you go in and following through with the execution. And it doesn't just necessarily even go into training, but there's a whole lot of additional things that need to be done before you even get to that point, right? I mean, even in the estimating phase of pre-planning for the job, there's a lot of things that need to be kind of addressed in that particular at that particular point. Right, absolutely. From the from the very beginning, you know, as an estimator, when we were looking at projects, we calculated the cost of the cost of the work. We calculated the cost of the of the training that was involved in the safety equipment, the materials. So, so all of those numbers rolled into the project. The money was there to do the work and, and should be there. You know, oftentimes it, it may be overlooked or you try to take shortcuts to, to be more aggressive. But but when it comes to safety, you have to have that, that foresight to, to plan on it, to estimate for it, and then to execute it. And when it comes to pre-planning for hazards, Chad, there are a lot of things that the standard, actually the subpart AA confined spaces and construction standard even requires of employers to make sure that they pre-planned for hazards, right? Things like monitors, barricades, signage, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely, Rick. And this stuff is all laid out there for you in the standard. Um, you know, obviously, if it's a confined space or we're just a permit required confined space, the use of monitors and continuous forced air ventilation within these confined spaces is key. Um, let's let's face it. You're not going to know if it's a permit required confined space. Typically, if you're not monitoring ahead of time, once you you crack the entry point to that manhole or to that vault or to that confined space in general. So. The use of air monitors, uh, whether they're personal or they're used up on top to sample air and in increments um, set forth by the standard as well as from manufacturers, um, it's key to make sure that you're testing those, those atmospheres that uh, you may encounter within a confined space. Um, once you realize that there are hazards associated with a confined space, we need to let people know that, that um, there are hazards there. So you need to keep people out of those confined spaces by the use of barricades and, and the use of signage and stuff like that, letting people know that a hazard exists in that area. And then obviously from a pre-planning stage, which goes back to training, there's an awful lot of information in there that tells you what, what how to set up an actual entry into a confined space and who needs to be involved um, from authorized entrance to attendees and to entry supervisors. So obviously your authorized entrant, the, the person and or people that are gonna go into the confined space they have a set of things that they need to know for entry into that confined space. An attendant stationed outside of one or more permit required confined spaces. Um, those people actually need to know what all those entrants are also doing from that standpoint. And then obviously an entry supervisor, those are the three stages that come into play as far as the people involved in a standard and and uh, well-executed confined space entry. And that, that entry supervisor has a lot of different uh, uh, responsibilities, just like the attendant and just like the authorized entrant, but uh, they're the person that's going to be overseeing all this stuff and, and making sure that the documentation, permitting, evaluating rescue personnel, all that type of stuff is in place. And when we're talking about monitoring the space, I mean, T Chet has spoken about testing the space prior to entry, but it is extremely critical and important that everybody understands that continuous monitoring of that space during entry is really what is required. I mean, the standard does allow for periodic testing, but the problem with periodic testing is it's just that. It's periodic. And an interesting point about my, um, 
my story is that that manhole had been entered before. So there was pipe installed in that. So it was there was a change in the conditions over the course of this project. The monitoring would have prevented the, the issue, but then also the knowledge that a system could change and, and that you have to make sure that you that you plan for that as well. Yeah, and I think a couple things that come into play when it comes to confined spaces and what we're talking about right now is that, you know, it, it, you, the continuous monitoring is huge because the act of being in the confined space, the work in which the your workers are performing in those confined spaces oftentimes can create hazardous atmospheres and or other hazards associated with entanglement, slips, trips, and falls, elevation changes, whatever it might be you run into a situation that potentially the work that you're doing in there could cause a hazardous atmosphere. And another misnomer out there is a lot of times people think that um, new construction for the most part is not a permit required confined space and therefore I don't need to test it. Um, I, I would uh, I would argue that those are some of the ones that we definitely need to be testing uh, as well while entering. And in, in the case in TJ's situation, that was a newer force main. And you now they ran into something that they that uh, caused a hazardous atmosphere in there. Some of the products that uh, are used to put uh, this infrastructure in place can cause hazardous atmospheres. And in some cases, even the act of concrete curing can cause a hazardous atmosphere from a low oxygen standpoint. So I think those are all things that need to come into play, especially from a pre-planning stage. I don't think you can rule out a confined space as being, uh, you know, not not necessarily hazardous versus one or another. That monitor is going to tell you as soon as you achieve one of those atmospheric thresholds that you do not want to achieve, and it's going to tell you to get the heck out of the hole. It's going to light up. It's going to vibrate. It's going to alarm. It's going to tell you to get out of the hole when those atmospheric thresholds and those atmospheric situations really do become hazardous. So it is extremely important to make sure that everybody understands, look, if nothing else, make sure that you at least have that monitor down there with you because right there, the hazardous atmosphere, that's the silent killer. That's the one that you're not going to see coming. So we've talked about pre-planning for the hazards. Now, the standard also requires you to pre-plan for emergencies. And this also has a lot of technical situations that you need to address, specifically one that I like to reiterate in classes over and over again, which is 911 is not going to be your entry rescue service of choice. Chad, give us a little bit of an idea what type of non-entry rescue systems that are out there that could be used. Yeah, so you have a couple different things here. I mean, non-entry means the, the rescue personnel are not going down in the confined space to actually rescue that person. So in other words, a typical setup for a confined space entry, you, you've got your monitors, like we talked about, for continuously monitoring. You, you've got your blowers, whether the setup is, um, de you know, depending on the size of the confined space, it'll, it'll change what type of blower you're using for continuous forced air ventilation. And then the third setup um, is some sort of retrieval device for non-entry and that that could be a tripod and winch um, that could be a tripod and winch with an srl on it um, it could be some sort of a davit system from that standpoint um, it could be uh, if you're in a non-permit required confined space it could be some sort of access and egress the use of a ladder from that standpoint so those are all typical non-entry rescue uh, setups 
Um, I think that term non-entry rescue sometimes gets a little misconfused where you're not actually, you're not going to send somebody down in there in that case. You're going to rescue that person from above. And I think that's a key difference between uh, what we need to talk about as far as non, non-entry and then obviously entry rescue. Some of the things that I like to point out in class is that 60% of all confined space fatalities happen to would-be rescuers. What we want to stress here among other things that we've been talking about today is never, ever, ever, never, never, ever, never attempt an entry rescue unless you are trained, certified, equipped, and authorized to do so. And it is in the standard that you must use non-entry rescue systems in all permit-required confined spaces. But there might be a situation where you cannot use that type of system. So thereby, you need to select a rescue team that can help respond to a rescue in a timely manner. And TJ, you might be able to give us a little bit of scenario about, or a little bit of information about how to choose a particular rescue team for a permit-required confined space. Absolutely. So the the rescue team, so it's, it's worth noting that not every fire department has a rescue team available that is trained. So it requires specific training for rescue. They have to have availability. They have to have notification and they have to be set up for the for the rescue and the type of environment that you're working. in. So it's very important prior to going back to the pre-planning. And if no teams available, you might have to look for alternate alternate means of, uh, of rescue or entry or, or changing the, the overall design of what you're trying to do. And in a lot of cases, in a lot of classes that I've done, some of the firefighters that have actually taken my class has routinely told us that when we're talking about non-entry systems and we're talking about entry rescues, the firefighters have routinely told me that even though if you can possibly wear that full body harness, which is something that could very well be required in a particular confined space, if you can wear that full body harness, even though you might not necessarily be hooked up to a retrieval line because there might be an internal configuration that could you know, really limit your ability to get somebody and crank somebody out of that particular situation. If you can actually wear that harness, even though you might not be hooked up, that might be the best scenario because if an emergency does develop and something and somebody does need to be rescued, they could possibly come on site, hook you and pull you out of that space without having to enter themselves. Because if a rescue team has to come on site, well, they're going to, they're not going to just jump right in to go in and start to try and help, they are going to do their pre-entry measures as well. They're going to take a measurement of the hazards, you know, of the gas. They're going to find out what type of a hazardous atmosphere could potentially be down there. They're going to look at the permit and they're going to determine what hazards are associated with the potential space. They're going to look at all of the various factors that deal with safety in that particular area to determine how are they going to enter. And that's if you haven't given them access to that particular space in order to create a rescue plan in the first place. Yeah. And I think a lot of this comes back and we talked about the, the personnel involved with this um, with a, with a good confined space entry and a, you know, you have your entrant, you have your attendant, you have your supervisor. A lot of this falls on this responsibility of determining these rescue services falls on the responsibilities of the supervisor and, or the company that in which you're working for that has has a permit plan in place, a, a permit entry confined space plan in place as a company and stuff. And, 
you know, a lot of times, like you said, the nine one one is just not going to work anymore. There's there's a lot of situations where you need to evaluate those confined spaces that you're getting into, and realize that if you're in a situation where a uh, flare up, so to speak, of a bad atmosphere, you you got to understand that your rescue service is X amount of minutes away, and maybe that X amount of minutes is too much for that of a of a hazardous atmosphere. So the evaluation process needs to be maybe that that maybe they need to be on standby and or right there at that facility in which you're working. So um, I think there's a lot of variations of what you could possibly have for rescue systems and and who you're relying on. Um, but I think it all has to come into play and it's going to change per entry that you're going to do. I, I think that's a key thing. It is, it's going to change from the environment in which you're working in. That's an excellent point, Chad. And you know to go back. So after our after our incident, we learned a lot, and it was definitely eye opening and scary. And and everybody that was involved grew tremendously. And we real real quickly put into play, you know, a pre planning process where we were looking at every entry at the time of estimation, all the way through pre construction stage, post construction stage, and we were we were making sure that we had all of the equipment, all of the materials and communicating with everybody that we needed to communicate with. The the owner of the project, if there was a construction manager, the construction manager, and we were following that process. And that is all part of the permit process as well. But before you issue that permit, you also have to realize, you know, you have to know that you need the permit. So you have to go through that process and properly document so that you have that information and that you have the, the materials and the equipment on hand to do the work safely. And when we're talking about permits, let's be clear on what we're talking about. This is the employer's document that controls access to particular types of confined spaces that have hazards that cannot be eliminated, eliminated or controlled using engineering methods. And because of that, then it is a, it is a permit required, meaning you have to observe and kind of evaluate that confined space to determine what hazards are down there. How are you going to control those hazards? How are you going to protect your employees from those particular hazards? So there are a lot of it. This is basically an administrative control to control access to that particular confined space. So that is what a permit is. Uh, too often I've gone to classes again to do permit required confined space training and they go so we need to go to city hall to pull a permit to go into it no that's not what we're talking about here we're talking about the employer's document to control access to confined spaces chad what are your final thoughts yeah and just going back to what we talked about is is this is a reoccurring theme tj's story that he went through with his team members at his old company is is not uncommon unfortunately we we continue to hear that. And there's there's uh, standards in place, there's um, equipment in place, there's training in place to um, put forth and, and, and make sure that everybody gets to go home at the end of the, the night. I always talk about the hazards associated with confined spaces. You know, people put a ton of emphasis in regards to the other half of our business, which is the excavation side of things, because a lot of times you can see those hazards. They're, they're visible on a job site. And the number one killer, like you mentioned, in regards to confined spaces 
is the the hazardous atmospheres and that's something that we can't see so we don't we don't necessarily it's out of sight out of mind so to speak when it comes to planning and pre-planning for these entries and stuff but i will say that there there uh there continues to be and and uh luckily for our in our industry there's a big focus on this training and and make sure that uh, we're putting forth our, our best efforts when it comes to training equipment um, and and knowledge and stuff with these standards that helps everybody get to go home safely every day. TJ, what were your thoughts? You know, as with a personal story and experience, it was life-changing for sure. Uh, I look at life a little bit differently and look at construction and and safety a little bit differently from that. And, and I was fortunate enough that I was at a pretty young age when, when I saw that. So, so everything going forward has definitely um, been impacted by that. But I think the biggest takeaway is that education, make sure you're trained to do the work. Education, make sure that you're talking and, and telling everybody what you're doing. And then just execution and following the principles that are set place. You know, the, the rules set forth by OSHA, the the experience, the, the conversations, the everyone that has been through the process, you know, listen, bring in the ideas, look at it with an open mind and just protect your protect your workers. And remember that things change quickly and have a plan for the what if. So this has been Behind the Standards with United Rentals. Now, should you have any questions about this topic or have suggestions about other topics that we could cover, please send us an email to urtspodcast at ur.com. On behalf of Chad, TJ, and myself, thanks for listening. Have a great day and stay safe.